This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with Dave Pascoe from LiveATC.net. In the news, the FAA's acting administrator is stepping down. Airbus and Air France are cleared in the Air France Flight 447 accident. The FAA has some advice for terrain avoidance and warning systems and airworthiness directives for Boeing 747-8s and B-17s. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 746 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first, Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's also a business jet pilot and a CFI, and he spent 10 years of his career at the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor. And of course, he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening. Um, I I like to think of myself as a recovering controller, but uh, <laughs> you know that we'll probably get hate mail for that. But hey, listen, and just so that all the listeners out there know how special they are to me tonight or tonight today is my wedding anniversary, but I'm here with you guys. Wow. Uh, I that just shows you how important you are uh, to me. <laughs> how long we've we been married now, Rob? I forget. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> it's nice to be here. All right. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hey, everybody. Looking forward to having a conversation later about my experiences in low-cost carriers. I say that plural because because of one, I had to fly a second. So there's there's some stories there. And, and of course... Um, a couple of days in Disney World and bathing in the universe of Star Wars was always good. But I'm looking forward to a good friend on our show who who we all know, and um, he's been around us for years, but we definitely are going to have a good conversation tonight. Yes, for sure. And before I introduce our guest, first uh, let me introduce Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hello again, and thank you for joining us wherever you happen to be around the world. Great to be here with my uh, colleagues. And I'm all uh, pumped up because I just got back from a week-long trip of uh, flying vision jets. So all all kinds of uh, fun flying around the country. Cool. All right. We're going to have to hear more about that later. But right now, let me introduce our guest. It's Dave Pascoe. He, of course, operates LiveATC.net, the world's largest collection of aviation radio voice data. Now, a little background on Dave. He's, he's had a lifelong obsession with radio and technology. He earned a MSEE degree, and he has a career that spans RF technology to large-scale IT systems management. But he's had a few minor detours along the way. Uh, one of those detours turned into LiveATC.net, which, uh, Dave, welcome to the show. I think you started that in 2002, was it? Yeah, in the uh, fall 2002. Good evening, Max, and uh, good evening, everybody. It's great to be here again. I think a lot of our listeners are, are familiar with LiveATC.net, 
And uh, if, if they're not, they've probably heard about it on the news or someplace else that uh, is citing ATC traffic from, uh, recorded from the, from the service. And what it does is, for those who are not familiar, it live streams uh, audio and archived voice data from over 3,000 channels of air traffic radio transmissions. Um, and this comes from all over the world, Dave. Um, how many points do you collect data from? We have uh, over, yeah, like you said, Max, it's over 3,000 channels, which come from over 1,500 airports. And, you know, we cover not just airports, but centers and other radar facilities as well, and including uh, HF radio. Uh, So we pick up uh, mostly Atlantic and uh, Caribbean traffic on HF. So, yeah, it's grown quite a bit. Did you ever think it was going to grow to be as large as it has become? No, no. It really started off as just a project to put one airport, Boston, on the uh, map. And uh, it was just meant for a small community of us and then turned into this crowdsourcing thing kind of by accident, just by kind of being out there and I guess being the first there. Well, so if you provide something something of value, uh, it uh, it can take on a life of its own and grow to be completely uh, successful, I think, is liveatc.net has done. But we're going to speak with Dave uh, a lot more about that coming up. But first, we have some of the aviation news from the past week. Is everybody ready? Ready from the West. And the Midwest. And the South. And New England. So first up comes from AIN Online. This is FAA's acting administrator stepping down. Rob, we've had an acting administrator for quite some time now. Yeah, unfortunately we have, and we're, we're starting to turn into, uh, or FAA is starting to turn into one of those agencies that can't uh, can't get a, a permanent administrator, uh, you know, past, past uh, the Senate. Uh, and, of course, uh, Billy Nolan announced just a few days ago that uh, he's the acting administrator, announced that he's going to be leaving uh, the agency, uh, he will be gone by the end of the year. And, uh, of course, the process to find a new person has kind of gotten thrown into turmoil, not because of Billy, but because of Mr. Washington, who was the uh, uh, the Biden administration's uh, uh, candidate. And uh, he didn't even get very far uh, in the confirmation process. And they said, OK, we're going to pull him. And so I, I think we talked a few weeks ago about, gee, I don't know, Billy seems to be doing a pretty decent job, uh, and why don't they just nominate him? Uh, but, of course, I think Billy Nolan kind of took that option off the table because he said, uh, guys, it ain't going to be me. I'm, I'm leaving anyway. So now, now I think the, uh, the White House is really in a pickle uh, because we haven't had anybody since uh, Steve Dixon resigned uh, sort of midterm uh, a couple of, well, was 22 or 20? I think it was 22. Yeah, I looked it up. It was uh, 13 months ago. So we've gone a long time without a, uh, you know, a, a confirmed administrator running the agency. Right. And, and for an industry that is as dynamic as it is and is in the news as much as it is, that's kind of strange. We we all kind of thought that maybe they'd have somebody in the wings. Uh, and I, honestly, 
I again, I thought it was going to probably be Billy Nolan, but uh, he doesn't want the job. So the question is, is he really, uh, you know, Steve Dixon left uh, to spend more time with his family, which uh, those of us that are of a certain age know uh, that mean that that's secret code for uh, they were going to can me. Uh, or I, they were, you know, uh, we, I don't want to be here and I don't want to tell anybody the truth. So I'm just going to tell them I'm off to spend more time with my family. Um, but, you know, and, and I think Billy Nolan mentioned that, uh, also, but, uh, he, he really caught people napping here the other day with this one. So do we get a new acting administrator? They'll, they'll have to name somebody. Um, and, uh. Uh, Nolan said that he'd uh, stay around uh, at least through the summer to to help them kind of add some continuity to uh, the, the folks at 800 uh, Independence Avenue, uh, which is FAA HQ. Uh, but uh, I think this caught them napping so much that they weren't even prepared with a, well, our, our third best candidate will be... Yeah. Um, uh, they 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 don't have any idea at this point, and it's it's, uh, it's it, you know again with all the publicity, all the issues that we're dealing with uh, in in this industry, uh, we we have to find somebody. Of course, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that if you look back uh, since the year two thousand, we've only had two FA administrators who've served out their full five year terms, and we've had uh, a lot of uh, acting administrators. We went from. Uh, September 2007 to June 2009 with two different uh, acting administrators. Uh, And then we had another period of a year and a half uh, in 2018 and into 2019 with Daniel Elwell, who was also acting. So it is interesting that we seem to have large periods of time where we had acting administrators and that a few of them actually, once confirmed, actually served the full five years. I don't know why that is. Hmm. Well, I... You know, having worked for the agency, although it was a long time ago, uh, the, the people I know that work there say much of the, uh, many of the problems are, are still there. I mean, it's a bureaucracy, uh, which means that uh, uh, it's governed by rules. Not not that, you know, not that the aviation industry shouldn't be, but it's the, it's the, uh, the way personnel are dealt with uh, in the agency that it becomes... Uh, rather petty at times, rather stifling. And people say, what do I need this for? Uh, I'll go someplace else and work and go somewhere where they, because really, I think some of the folks that have taken these jobs really say, well, you know what? I think I can make a difference. And and the, the bureaucracy just sucks them into this quagmire and they eventually just go away. Okay. I guess I'll withdraw my application. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, these kind of jobs, like Rob said, you sort of you can definitely make more money in the public sector than you do working for the FAA. the The confirmation process has gotten so um, political. I mean, the FAA and um, other these kind of jobs should not be these political footballs that they've become. How it shouldn't be that hard to get an FAA administrator and, and have them last through five years, but unfortunately, it's the whole political aspect that everything now has gotten so political. It doesn't. I mean, it, whoever you whoever nominates you is going to be a black mark against 
your nomination. I don't know how we get beyond that. Well, most well-run companies have a succession plan. I mean, that works when you're developing uh, the skills and people to run the organization internally. But with the FAA, these are more political appointments, aren't they, for the administrators? So you don't have yes. the the benefit of being able to bring people through the system who are then become qualified to lead it. Well, but that's not that's not unusual for any yeah. uh, federal department. Uh, of course, you have your career uh, officers, the career bureaucrats, as we might call them, who have a vested interest in just leaving things alone the way they are because it runs fine. Except that we've had a few Until indications recently that uh, things are not running fine. Uh, and I don't mean to pick on, on the airlines because they've had their own issues, but FAA's had a few of their uh, theirs as well. And uh, right now, we're kind of not getting anywhere. So, uh, But, you know, it, it was interesting with Billy Nolan because uh, the AIN story uh, mentioned that uh, he had pretty broad support from Republicans and Democrats. Uh, so that's why I thought, they're going to take him. Why not? And I couldn't figure out why he wasn't nominated in the first place. But, well, like I said, that, that option's off the table. Well, not only that, but he was he was an airline pilot. Uh, he also had a background in safety, uh, a topic that's you know near and dear to all of our hearts and, and the public's. Um, not that that makes the best administrator, but I got to believe that they have uh, some candidates lined up for the acting administrator. At least I hope they do. And given the history and the uh, you know, tumultuous nature of the positions in the last few years, I would think they'd always have a list, a bench ready to, uh, you know, evaluate and step up for at least the acting role. So, but you know, it makes me wonder if, if Billy Nolan's the acting administrator, would the next person be the acting acting administrator? <laughs> so. Or would they give him a, him or her a, a better name like probably someday going to be the administrator or I, I don't know. <laughs> Deputy acting. Right. Ah, yes. Dave, do you ever have occasion to uh, uh, have conversations with the FAA? Do they ever call up, it, call you up at liveatc.net and say, Hey Dave, we got a problem. Can you help us out? <laughs> yeah. Funny. You, funny. You should mention that. I, I do um, on a somewhat regular basis uh, work with, um, some of the tech ops people, we've got such a large receiver network that occasionally when they have interference issues, they'll use recordings, they'll use live streams as part of uh, evaluating and trying to find out where radio interference is coming from. We helped once uh, in the New York City area with a pirate radio station that was creating all kinds of uh, spurious signals that was uh, that were really uh, interfering with the New York Tracon, one of the New York Tracon frequencies. And uh, so we helped them out with that and some other stuff on the West Coast uh, not too long ago within the last year. So, you know, not every week, but, you know, occasionally we'll interact with them. Yeah, interesting. I thought you were going to say no. I, I really did. <laughs> but but I'm intrigued by pirate radio. What kind of uh, – is this somebody trying to do their own AM station or what – I mean, what was the nature of the pirate radio? Yeah, so 
pirate radio, uh, you can you can Google. It's been around forever, but they're FM. They're sort of low-power FM radio stations that people run out of their apartments, literally, and they'll put an antenna on the roof, and they usually have a pretty, uh, what we call a, a dirty power amplifier, and so, you know, they're broadcasting on frequencies they shouldn't be broadcasting, obviously, uh, hence the term pirate. And uh, what happens is those unauthorized transmitters, those radio signals will mix with other high-power radio signals and produce what we call intermodulation. And, you know, there's a lot of – I can go through all the math. It will be very boring for listeners. But basically the result could be a signal that comes out right on an aviation frequency. Uh, and so you'll just hear music on, you know – New York approach. And, <laughs> yeah. and then they'll have to – so what they do is they normally switch to another frequency. They have spares and they'll operate on that other frequency for some period of time until they can resolve the issue. Hmm. Interesting. Which usually ends up in an arrest. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, you don't want to mess with the uh, radio spectrum and <laughs> operate where you're not licensed to, obviously. All right. Uh, next item. This comes from the BBC. Uh, you'll remember, recall Air France Flight 447. That was the Airbus uh, A330 that crashed in the Atlantic Ocean and uh, killing all 228 people on board. And, Rob, we have some news uh, concerning, well, the sort of the status of Air France and Airbus in this crash. It was a very interesting story that came out a week ago uh, that uh, the French courts have uh, cleared both Airbus and Air France of uh, any uh, criminal wrongdoing in the uh, in the uh, loss of uh, Air France 447. And um, now I am not a lawyer. There's I, I posted some of this on Facebook, and and one guy that I know that has a legal background spent about four paragraphs uh, explaining why he disagreed uh, with the, uh, or I'm sorry, why he agreed with the uh, the court ruling because of the the way the evidence was presented and how uh, you know the the, the uh, court reviews the evidence and points fingers or doesn't. And and all those of us in the industry know is that uh, it looks like uh, Airbus, uh, which was, of course, providing the aircraft, it was an A, A330 that went in. Uh, and Air France, uh, they had no issue with them. And, and of course, uh, I think the biggest part of that whole mess was that uh, the, uh, the pilots were Air France employees, and usually when uh, an employee is in the middle of a, uh, a liability issue like this, the company is automatically sucked into the, into the process. But in this case, um, uh, they said, no, uh, we don't see any, uh, uh, any enough evidence to, uh, to find them guilty of anything. Uh, but, of course, the Air France people trained their pilots and of course, we all know that uh, for those that don't remember that accident, uh, the uh, the pitot tubes on the A330 uh, froze over, and they lost airspeed uh, indications, and uh, and the pilots made some serious serious uh, uh, you know flying uh, ish uh, flying mistakes. Um, I mean, they they really did not know what the airplane was doing because they were looking at the airspeed indicator. 
which is absolutely unreliable when the, a tube freezes over. And uh, as, as many people, uh, uh, you know, Bill Palmer, who we had on the show, oh, I don't know how many years ago, that wrote a book on, uh, on the accident, uh, said the same thing to me the other day that, you know, if, if they just let the airplane be, if they just left it alone, it was in level flight, it was flying fine. Uh, of course, the autopilot popped off, but it was still level at, I don't know, 39 or something, 39,000 or whatever. And if they had, it was in trim, they just left it alone for a second and said, what the hell's going on here? They realized the airplane was flying just fine. What the folks in the cockpit did was take a perfectly good airplane and, and turn it into a, a lawn dart. And um, uh, again, with the loss of all those people. And uh, the worst the worst part of that investigation was reading the transcript of the CVR uh, when, when you know that, oh, I think they said that once they had pulled the stick back and the airplane stalled and it was basically coming down in a pancake sort of motion, uh, the only thing you could possibly do to get the airplane flying again was to shove the nose over and get the wing flying again. And they didn't have the altitude to do that because they were coming down at some hellacious rate. Um, and um, the, the last part of the recording you hear, uh, the, the uh, cockpit uh, warning system going, stall, 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 and all the way to the water. And it, it smacked into the water, and uh, it, was, uh, it was all over. But again, how they can say that Air France had absolutely no role in, in training these pilots uh, is, is beyond me. Uh, or I'm sorry, the, the Air France obviously had a, 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 a responsibility to train them, but that, that the fact that they couldn't fly the airplane when this happened at high altitude, um, it, it's just beyond me. Of course, this was in a French court, and the, the legal standards for this being an offense uh, might be different. I'm not sure. I don't know. The The judge was quoted. She said, a probable cause link isn't sufficient to characterize an offense. But, of course, the families of the victims were there. They were, um, according to this report, shocked and and angered. Um, and this happened in 2009. You know, I... I I remember, I remember this accident pretty well, and we talked about it a lot. Um, and as you said, uh, Rob, we had Palmer on, and it, it was just amazing to me that this was 2009, that this was that long ago, and this is just you know now um, the court this court case is just concluding now. Well, and it, it did open up an awful lot of doors uh, that have changed the way that we train pilots today because. Uh, we did not train pilots in uh, how an aircraft behaves uh, at high altitude when it uh, when it stalls, and and so we learned some very interesting things about that. And now we train pilots uh, for high, these high altitude. Uh, uh, I don't want to say maneuvers, but high altitude emergencies, uh, and that uh, sometimes the best thing you can do is just let. Well, in fact, Max T, you you know that, and and Dave, maybe that you know. You've been with a somebody in another in an airplane, and you say, "Okay, just let go of it. It's trimmed. Just let go of it and watch what happens." They go, "Nothing happens." Yeah, that's the point. Mm-hmm. You know, that just you know, give it a second, give it you know the 
what is it, Max T? It's the uh, when you have an emergency, uh, wind the clock, and you're supposed to give it 10 seconds or something before you touch anything. I forgot what the time is exactly, but it's so that you don't do something stupid that makes the problem even worse. And uh, I must say, you remember a few years ago, I, I took some time away from the show to to try to write a book about, uh, you know, the uh, loss of control uh, topic. And uh, for one reason or another, it didn't come together. But that, beside that, uh, what I did, though, is I was over in France and I had an opportunity to uh, to sit down with the father of the young fellow that was in the right seat of uh, 447. And uh, he was also a pilot. And uh, it was just so sad because this this poor fellow was just broken. He was devastated because, of course, his daughter-in-law was uh, was a, a non-rev passenger on the airplane. So he became, you know, I think they had either two or three little kids. And suddenly now they were all orphans uh, in one fell swoop. And he felt terribly guilty. What what could I have done to, what what should I have done? Could I have taught my son something to, um, to help, you know, alleviate the chance that something like this would ever happen? And and you know, it just went on and on and on. But I, I was I was just I, I couldn't really talk because I felt so bad. I almost cried at this guy's dining room table listening to his story and. Uh, but this this is a this was a tough one for the people of France. Mm. And of course, we often look at this these accidents as, you know, sadly, uh, opportunities to learn something to improve and get better. And um, I kind of think that's that's more important than prosecuting somebody or holding someone accountable. We want we want everybody to be open. And if there's a fear that they could end up in jail or in prison, uh, yeah, that tends to, to clam people up and get defensive. And that kind of works against the process of trying to understand root cause and to make changes that improve the safety overall for everyone. Sure. And I think in that story somewhere, it, uh, it, uh, or, or the uh, release from uh, uh, the French, it, it mentioned that the pilot, that pilot error was the uh, main cause. Sure it was. Absolutely. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. But why? Right. You know, that's the part, you know, when we see these reports from the NTSB and they they make some simple comment like the the pilot flew the aircraft into the ground. Sure, they did. But why? Uh, That's what we really want to know because that's really the only way you can ever improve the system. And and let's face it, since two thousand and nine, uh, we've we've had a really great uh, aviation safety record uh, here in the United States, uh, and uh, you know around the world it's not bad. It's not as good as it is here, though. Yeah, you know the sort of leave it, leave it, leave well enough alone kind of resonated with me. I have a, a good friend who was a NetJets pilot, flew uh, famous people all around the world, and he told me one time about a. Uh, this reminded me of this weather phenomenon that you'll get in the Pacific and, and other you know, tropical areas called hot towers. And it's basically a, a tropical uh, cumulonimbus cloud with a lot of latent heat 
that builds up in the uh, in the cloud and it's released as uh, water vapor and it condenses in the liquid um, and freezes uh, into ice within the cloud. And he was telling me the story when they were going from Hawaii down to Australia where, you know, they would they would lose a thousand feet, you know, easy, fifteen hundred, two thousand feet, and they just they just had to ride it out. And, you know, if you try to do anything severe in terms of controlling the airplane, uh it could result in something far worse than just kind of riding it out. You just take the altitude loss and you you deal with it. So it this kind of reminded me a little bit about that, a diff- little different situation, uh, but kind of the same, the same thing really about pilots sort of, you know, riding it out even when it feels like you ought to be doing something. Dave, you're a private pilot yourself, correct? I am, yes. Do, do you do much flying? I do, yeah. I fly uh, fairly regularly. I'm in a flying club here that I've been involved in for since 2006, but I got my private back in 2001. I took my check ride actually two days before uh, 9-11. And we uh, obviously went into a shutdown for a little while. And then I did my instrument rating the following year. And uh, so, yeah, I stay current and uh, I'm with a club that has a couple of airplanes, a Bonanza, an A-36 Bonanza and a uh, Piper Archer. So mostly most of my hours up to this point are in the Bonanza. And I was just going to say, uh, Dave, I took my CFI check ride the day after you did. <laughs> I think we talked about this once. Yeah, day before uh, 9-11, which I, had I taken it on 9-11 the following day, I would have been stuck 90 miles away uh, on the ground because I flew up there to do the uh, the check ride. And, of course, then uh, couldn't, couldn't teach for probably about the next six weeks after that. All right. Uh, our next item, uh, this is about terrain avoidance and warning systems. The FAA has a notice, a warning to pilots about these alerts. And uh, Rob, you picked up on this. Seems like something that pilots would want to pay attention to. Yeah, if they don't turn the systems off. The, most of the TAWS uh, systems, even in transport category aircraft, have... Uh, well, actually, you know, I don't know if that's still true. Uh, they often have an inhibit switch uh, because sometimes when you're... Uh, close to the ground and you know where you are, the TAWS warning, if the uh, terrain rises and and descends uh, uh, quickly underneath the airplane, uh, the radar altimeter can say, oh, you're going to hit the ground, you know, you know, warn terrain, terrain. Uh, and, and sometimes in smaller aircraft, especially uh, where they're flying close to the ground, th- this can be really annoying because I know... I know where I am. I can see the hill. It's okay. But, you, you know, the, the technology obviously doesn't work that way. Uh, but they have, there have been accidents in which if the pilots had had the terrain system uh, turned on, uh, they wouldn't have smacked the ground. And because, you know, sometimes somebody turns it off and then somebody else takes the airplane two hours later and they don't realize maybe that the inhibit uh, function is still engaged and, uh it uh, doesn't work out very well. So FAA uh, went out of its way to say, please don't turn the damn things off. They're no good if you've turned them off. Uh, so, you know, it would be like if we could inhibit the uh, the analog braking, uh, analog brakes, braking system in a car. Uh, when you needed it, you'd realize, I turned it, and then, of course, it ends. 
I don't know. Matt might scold me for this, but uh, I'm not sure how to turn it off. So, <laughs> uh, you don't want to know. Yeah, I'm not going to look for it. <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking about it. there's some aircraft you can turn it off and some that you can't. Uh, I was reading a story associated with this when it came out uh, a week or two ago, or when it first uh, you know hit the press. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, in fixed wings, usually this isn't an issue where, especially if you're flying IFR, you're just not that close to the terrain. But the article pointed out that for some types of operations, especially helicopter pilots who are doing low level work, uh, this thing is incredibly annoying because it's going off constantly uh, to the point where you become immune to it and it would no longer be effective. And so uh, these pilots sometimes turn it off. So I think there is a bit of a conundrum for certain kinds of operations where, yeah, it's so annoying, you almost have to turn it off. And which types of aircraft are these systems operating on? Not not every aircraft. Well, so for example, Cirrus th- yeah, yeah, certainly uh, most of the Cirrus aircraft have it. Um, and I'm trying to remember, you, it's not the kind of thing you would find in a 172, uh, but certainly as you start to, to get up a little above that um, you know, level of aircraft, you, you'll find it. And transport category aircraft, business jets, airliners, they all have it. Yep, required for them. Yeah, ours is probably not a strictly a TAWS, you know, certified system, but we have those warnings on the GNS 480, the Garmin GPS that we use. So we, we get them, you know, on, on descent and, and climb out. And I will just throw this out. If you are in an aircraft and you're flying and you hear this, Add full power and pitch up. I've been surprised when I've been instructing, uh, when we've had the terrain alert go off, when someone is uh, under the hood for simulated instrument work, they just sit there and they don't do anything. And I think probably they're thinking, well, Max is with me, so he's not going to let anything bad happen. But, you know, I want them to be primed and ready. I hear that thing. Hey, start climbing like your life depends upon it, because it probably does. Well, the wording in the FAA notice is that uh, alerts from TAWS can become a nuisance or a distraction to pilots when flying at altitudes below the alerting threshold of the system. This may result in the pilot's decision to inhibit the system. That means turn it off. Inhibiting warning systems and ignoring warnings combined with deteriorating weather conditions leading to loss of visual surface reference and situational awareness has been found to be the cause of some controlled flight into terrain accidents. So the FAA is uh, encouraging pilots to not turn the system off, but maybe, you know, we were talking about root causes of, uh, of things before. Um, you know, you could say that of an accident, well, the root cause was a pilot had the system turned off, but, but that's not the real root cause. The, the real question is why did the pilot turn it off? Well, because it was annoying. Well, why was it annoying? And is there some kind of system redesign or technology change or something that can be done so that it's, you know, you don't get these false positives. You don't get this annoying situation. I I don't know. I suspect the algorithm that they use was designed more for transport category aircraft. And I'm guessing that you'd have to go back and rework the algorithm to make it more usable for you know, aircraft that are you know, purposely flying low all the time. I mentioned helicopters, but also a pipeline patrol. You've got a lot of fixed wing aircraft that are flying hundreds of feet above the ground, uh, inspecting pipelines daily. And so for those aircraft, boy, this would be incredibly annoying. <laughs> 
And just as, this is you said the words incredibly annoying, a cat's tail just brushed across your face. <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> She's sitting here next to me. Quite timing. Quite good timing. Uh, you know, and, and this, of course, is contradictory to what we were talking about a minute ago, that when something happens, you should, <laughs> like a cattail passing in front of the camera, um, you should take a breath and think about it before you do anything. This is not the same thing. As Max said, this is one of those times when you must make the airplane climb as quickly as possible. All right. Uh, we have some items, uh, uh, several items relating to air, airworthiness directives. Um, the first one comes from Simple Flying, and this is concerning Boeing 747 8 aircraft. And maybe we'll just touch on it because we're hoping to have a, uh, a 747 pilot on next week for guess what? Episode 747. Uh, but we'll mention it. Uh, from Simple Flying, FAA proposes new air, airworthiness directive for Boeing 747-8 aircraft. And this is a, a, an NPRM, a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking Concerning Cracks in Stringers Common to the End Fittings uh, Forward and Aft of the Pressure Bulkhead at Multiple Stringer Locations. And this is on the 747. This is-8I and 7F, the freighter series aircraft. And the uh, airworthiness directive that's being proposed by the FAA would require inspections of stringer sidewalls and certain stringer assemblies uh, common to the end fittings and looking for any cracks or any other on-condition um, findings. And um, the FAA, in its investigation, determined that during assembly, some unshimmed or incorrectly shimmed gaps larger than what's required, caused, quote, excessive and sustained internal tensile stresses and resulted in stress corrosion cracking in the stringers. None of those words are good uh, when they relate to an airplane. No, very bad. But there have been some other 747 um, airworthiness directives lately. There was um, one related to undetected water leaks from the faucet control module. I found this one. They migrated below the passenger floor in multiple lavatory locations during flight, and the water ended up in the electronic equipment bays. So that's also a bad thing to uh, to have happen on an aircraft. And so in this case, um, this proposed AD would require some, uh, again, visual inspections, repetitive visual inspections of the area under all lavatory wash basins for evidence of, uh, of, these, of these leaks. There's also an AD, um, there are reports of the, the RAT, the RAM, yeah, the RAM air turbine, the pump barrel assembly failures, which uh, caused the, the RAT to fail to provide hydraulic power. The RAT, the ram air turbine, of course, is that uh, little little device that opens up out of the fuselage, uh, puts a basically a propeller in the in the airstream uh, attached to, I guess, a generator to uh, create electrical power when other systems are out. Not not real rats. Not the rats that uh, Trescott's cat keeps away. All of these ads are well, they're serious for one thing, and they may make you wonder about you know the. The, the ability to produce uh, 
you know, safe aircraft. But ADs come around all the time. Uh, I mean, they, sometimes they're design shortcomings. Sometimes they're manufacturing errors. Sometimes it's just the result of knowledge gained after accumulating a lot of hours or cycles with a particular aircraft. I mean, you guys who are pilots know this and and see these things happen all the time. It's it's sort of part of a general process of improving the safety of the aircraft. Sure, and it's it's often based on on incident reports that come from. Uh, uh, pilots uh, or technicians or flight attendants, and doesn't mean there has to be an accident in order for an AD uh, to to be issued. Uh, some you know people at the FAA, and sometimes it's the manufacturer that says, you know, we've got a problem here, and we want to make sure that everybody uh, knows about it. Uh, but of course, realize too, the FAA can only publish the information. Uh, they can they cannot make certain that. Uh, a company complies with it, uh, except in, in the U.S. So uh, 7478 uh, that's being operated uh, in North Africa, for instance, uh, they may know about what the AD is, but, the, you know, whatever the governing uh, regulator is, they may or they may not comply, and they, or they may not even have anybody that can inspect to see if uh, the, the company that's operating is complying. And these ADs may apply to older aircraft, uh, not just oh. newer aircraft, sometimes really old aircraft, right, Rob? Uh, why are you saying very old and looking at me that way, uh, Max? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Warbirds, World War II. Warbirds. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I took that... Uh, that segue a bit personally, um, and I, I thought I it was apologize a good segue. for that. <laughs> no, it, it's kind of sad to say that uh, there's uh, probably an upcoming AD on the B-17s and uh, for uh, wing spar issues. Old aircraft uh, often end up with these kinds of uh, issues just because they've been around a long time. Uh, hey, David uh, uh, V., um, <laughs> When did they stop building B-17s? Before the end of the Second World War? 44 or 45. So they they trickled out through the end of the war. So metal gets old. Well, and think about what was the intended design lifespan when they first put that aircraft together. You know, my guess is they uh, said, hey, five was the number that came to mind as well. You know, you're in a war effort. You want to get stuff out quickly. By having a shorter lifetime, you probably can make a lighter aircraft. So, yeah, uh, these things were not intended to last 75 years, which is what it would be since, uh, you know, 1945-ish. In some of the museums that operate uh, flying B-17s, of which there are not many, have uh, have grounded their B-17s in anticipation of this upcoming AD. The Yankee Air Museum, for example, has grounded its uh, B-17 Yankee Lady, uh, anticipating this airworthiness directive. I don't know how many flying B-17s there are. I tried to find out, but I got some different different kinds of numbers. Uh, Aero Vintage says there's now only four operational B-17s left, but I don't know if that means United States or or worldwide. I bet you that's worldwide because nobody, well, hardly anybody except maybe the Brits and the French uh, are, are airplane geeky enough to want to restore uh, airplanes that were built 
80 years ago. Uh, but uh, just to be clear, too, the, of course, the Collings Foundation uh, did operate a B-17-909 uh, that crashed at Bradley uh, some years back. But that had nothing to do with uh, this particular issue that's causing uh, the, the B-17s to be grounded now. I mean, that one had a, a mechanical engine issue, turned out to be a maintenance issue. But again, something totally different. Yeah, and there's been some chatter in um, social media from some of the folks associated with some of these B-17s saying that this wing spar issue is is common, uh, commonly known within the B-17 community. Uh, but grounding them, especially for these foundations that uh, it's very expensive to keep these things flying, and they do generate revenue. Uh, unless they're grounded, in which case they don't, and that could be an issue. But to me, what a bigger issue, I'm interested in in hearing what you guys think about this, is that how small does the number of irreplaceable historic aircraft of a certain type have to get before you say, you know what, we need to stop flying these things because eventually there won't be any of them and we need to preserve them and, and, and not fly them. I mean, I... I'd rather see these kinds of aircraft flying, but I mean, does it reach a point where you say it's just not the smart thing to do? What do you think? I think the number is zero. <laughs> I think people just continue to to fly them. There's there's nobody who has an incentive to say, "Yeah, oh, we're going to stop flying ours because ours is the last one." Yeah, I, I think that's true. And unfortunately, that is the incentive. Ours is the last one, so therefore we have to fly it. It's funny with the warbirds coming along there's the old saying about you know if every piece of a boat has been replaced is it still the same boat and a lot of these warbirds are not the same aircraft that came off the line the first year i was at oshkosh they had a f8f bearcat that was painted out in gulf stream Four markings, which was the bright orange FA-8 Bearcat. It's now been restored back to navy blue colors. But it was restored in those colors because it had one gauge from the original Gulf Hawk 4. And there's such a large industry now of recreations out there uh, of warbirds, you know. Um, Maybe there is a better way, but it's it's tough when you start talking about things like B-24s and B-17s. Who's going to rebuild – who's going to build a B-17 from scratch to make a uh, Warbird, you know? But y- you never know. There might be somebody out there um, – I'm looking at New Zealand – who might want to do that, and that might be an alternative. But – yeah, I mean, airplanes are designed to fly. It's kind of, while looking at them in, in museums, great. There's something magical about watching a B-17 fly by and open up its bombays. You know, it's, or if you've ever had the privilege of seeing multiple B-17s, you know, it's, it, there's inspiration there. You know, I, Texas Raiders, um, which was my first B-17, flew into the base at Willow Grove um, for a, a, a tour. Um, and I guess it was with whatever their B-25 was. 
But I remember my father taking me outside of my front lawn, and I was seven years old, to watch a B-17 fly over my house. And it's four radials. And that image is not something that is, you know, it, it, it it's important to people... You know, it's important for the generation that we're losing right now, but it's also important for young people to understand, you know, where we've come from, what we, where we've did. And these are the things that make us pilots, make us want to be pilots. It's, it's important, you know. So how many is too many? I, I don't know. Um, you know, and we always go through this every time we have a major accident with a warbird. You know, is is enough? Do we ground them all? But then you you go, but how many people have wanted to learn to fly because they saw one of these aircraft that saved democracy? You know, or fought for um, freedom, or just inspired other people to become pilots? It's kind of important, you know. It's just as important with all the classic air for airplanes out there, as well as classic cars. You know, we talk about electrification coming up, you know, and all of the people who drive classic automobiles, do we take them off the road because they're not electric? I, this is always going to be a, a give and take over the next thousand years of of. You know, an airplane is meant to be flown. You know, you, a radial is meant to be heard <laughs> and felt, you know. And, and in a museum, I can put in a videotape of a Bell 47, you know, and I can turn it up loud. But to go up next to one that's running and feel the thumping of the blades and, and feel that to even to a young kid or to an adult, that's a completely different experience than just looking at one in a museum. And this is coming from someone who works in a museum. You know, it you need both to bring that experiment experience to, to, to totality. Well, I think one thing that that is important, and David, you hit on it. I mean the the sound. How many people in this younger generation will even know what we mean when we say, oh, yeah, but, you know, when you've heard, a, you wait until you've, you've heard a P-51 startup and it and that Merlin cranks and, you know, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, on a B-17, four of those babies go flying by or a B-24 or whatever. But I do think that that one issue that, that does pop up and came up uh, with this one is that these organizations uh, do take people for rides. And people are paying uh, to to go fly these, uh, take a ride in one of these airplanes, and, and they have no idea what's going on. Uh, they, I mean, those people at at uh, Bradley uh, a couple of years ago, they had no idea that the maintenance was bad on that B seventeen, uh, and and that I think is an issue that that people are concerned about. And maybe that's making them jump the gun on this B-17 thing. I, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, you, 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 you can't exactly uh, uh, buy a fresh wing spar for a B-17. Uh, no, in fact, um, yeah, they, they are, as you might think, uh, incredibly long 
and uh, it's difficult to uh, you know to get a fabricator to make one even. It's a you know that's a real issue. So um, I think they're probably going to struggle a little bit. The operators of these B seventeen struggle a little bit to if they have to replace one of these things. That's kind of the and I agree totally with what everything David said. Uh, but the thing on my mind is the uh, number of qualified mechanics who can even work on these things, and even pilots who can fly them. I mean, that's less of a problem, but not a not a zero problem. It's uh, certainly on the mechanic front. It's definitely uh, could become a factor at some point in time as as they die off and the knowledge isn't passed. Yeah, it definitely takes a t- a team of skilled people to maintain and safely fly these aircraft. All right. Again, we're speaking with Dave Pascoe from LiveATC.net. Dave, again, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Um, I think we've all used, listened to LiveATC.net from, uh, from one standpoint or another, but maybe give us a little overview of what LiveATC.net is and how it operates. Sure, and it's great to be here with uh, with all you guys uh, tonight. Um, basically, LiveATC is, you could think of it as just a, a worldwide uh, listening network of, uh, you know, picture yourself if you've ever used a, you know, a two-way aviation radio or a, a scanner to listen in at your local airport. You basically have access to a worldwide uh, set of frequencies that you can listen to, but you can do it on your smartphone or your computer. Uh, We also store uh, all of that audio. So every single uh, conversation that happens across the system is uh, digitally recorded and stored for uh, right now a year, and that's going to be increasing to to two years. So it's basically just a kind of a giant surveillance network for not just air traffic control communications where pilots are talking to controllers, but also for airports where there are no control towers, uh, what we call uncontrolled fields. Uh, We also monitor uh, 121.5 emergency frequency or commonly called guard in many areas. So basically it's, it's there for training purposes, entertainment, uh, safety. Uh, There's a lot of safety lessons that come out of the conversations that are that are captured. Of course, that's only one element of of a flight, but sometimes can give a uh, an additional dimension to an accident investigation, uh, things like that. So it's really used by a, a pretty wide group a pretty wide audience uh, from, you know, NTSB themselves to pilots, to CFIs, to, you know, airline, commercial airline pilots and biz jet operators and flight schools, FBOs, you name it. So it's museums. Wide, and museums. <laughs> <laughs> so danger of, of listing all the, uh, all the audience, you're going to leave somebody out. Yeah. And so anybody can, tune in, so to speak, on the website, correct, to, uh, um, to, to listen in. That's right. Yeah, just go to liveatc.net, put in your, uh, your airport's 
identifier code. And if we have coverage at your airport, it'll take you to a page and it'll show you which channels we're monitoring at that and which frequencies we actually have at that airport. And they're not all the same. You know, some places will have uh, a receiver that scans between ground and tower, you know, at a, at a not so busy airport that works okay because there usually isn't a lot of collisions because you can only hear one frequency at a time. At the larger airports, we have uh, more expansive systems that listen to all the channels and separates them out. And we all, we can also digitally combine those as well. So uh, like ground and tower will have each will have their own channel, but we'll have a third channel that is in stereo and you'll just, you'll hear ground on the left side and tower on the right side. So it's really a mixed bag, and it really depends on what equipment we have deployed or what equipment a volunteer is providing on uh, on their own. Take a moment and explain to us why sometimes the uh, signal that people might hear when they're listening to live ATC uh, may not be as good as they expect or not as good as they might hear when they're in an airplane up at altitude. Yeah, so that that's a great question, Max. Basically – there's this saying that, you know, beggars can't be choosers, right? <laughs> so sometimes we get volunteers who are, say, a few miles away from the airport. Maybe let's say they're 10 miles away and they've put an antenna outside. Well, they're not going to hear uh, all the aircraft or maybe any of the aircraft on the ground at an airport that's 10 miles away. Uh, but they will hear all of the airborne traffic. So frequently you'll hear all the planes, but you won't hear uh, any air traffic controllers, or you might hear them, but they're really scratchy, and it's just due to distance and the equipment that they're they're using. The only thing that could make that better is if they put up, you know, a, a eighty or hundred foot antenna tower and put the antenna on top of that. But that's beyond uh, most volunteers' reach. Uh, so, you know, evaluating these different locations where we put things when we have a choice uh, is a is a large. Uh, logistical challenge. So a lot of the sort of heavy lifting of getting the channels at all is really doing that evaluation, you know, before deploying equipment or, and sometimes it just results in a deciding not to deploy equipment and just wait for somebody who might be closer to the airport. And while that's frustrating, it's sometimes a better thing because then you end up with a better result. So, Dave, tell us a little bit about the the volunteers and the the equipment that they might operate. Yeah, so it, it ranges all over. You know, a volunteer really only needs uh, like a radio, uh, you know, a radio scanner that covers the airband frequencies one eighteen to one thirty six uh, megahertz. Uh, that some type of antenna, preferably uh, outside, uh, mounted on a rooftop or you know somewhere out in the open. Um, they also could do this now with uh, a Raspberry Pi or, or some other type of tiny computer and a little device called a uh, software-defined radio that's a little USB stick uh, that has an antenna connector on one end and a USB plug on the other. And that little device plugs into the computer and the magic of software turns it into a radio. And so that that's sort of the minimal setup. And most of our deployed equipment uh, nowadays is is that by default. There are some instances where we use regular analog radios. But, you know, a flight school, for example, that has a unit, what they like to call a unicom radio um, sitting there, uh, a lot of times we tap into that, you know, and 
hook it up to their computer, and that gives us uh, coverage at that airport. So lots of different ways to, to do it, and we have lots of different types of software that run on different computer platforms that basically turn the radio signal into a digital stream and sends it up to us. Do the volunteers uh, have to be involved in any kind of maintenance of the system, or is it completely passive? You set it up and turn it in, plug <laughs> it on, and forget about it? Most of the time, yeah, most most of the time, but, you know, we, we all know about technology and and. Stuff breaks, right? So uh, sometimes components fail, uh, power outages happen, glitches happen where there's a momentary power outage and it glitches the computer and it needs to be power cycled. But by and large, uh, Rob and I were talking about one that he helped uh, us uh, get into uh, up in the Chicago area where he flies. And I can't remember the last time there was an outage on that system. So many of them, really the majority of them, and we monitor every single channel uh, in a big network monitoring system. And so we know we have all the stats. I can tell you what the uptime on any discrete channel in the whole system was. Uh, but some places have more problems than others just due to environmental things like internet, you know, uh, stability and power stability. It's funny, uh, Dave mentioned that I, I was able to help one time, and uh, at Chicago Exec, uh, uh, we had a uh, uh, a live ATC for oh for ages, and the uh, the receiver was in the uh, uh, leading edge flying club, uh, in inside of a hangar at one at the south end of the airport, and I remember seeing it, but I, I kind of knew you know what live ATC was about, and I went, yeah, okay, there's the. Live ATC radio and and the antenna was essentially like somebody had stuck a piece of wire to a, a window with, with some tape and I'm I'm not as as uh, uh, cognizant of all the technical issues that, that Dave you and Max T are but uh, I said yeah yeah okay. and and I don't know one day somebody complained about you know the signal on that live ATC thing man it's a piece of junk and and I. I thought, well, you know, I know Dave, and I, I called him. And I said, "Hey, Dave, what, what's going on with the uh, the system over at Powaukee or Chicago Exec?" And he went, "Well, it's kind of limited because of the location." And I, I said, "Well, what, what do you need?" He said, "Well, what we need is we need a decent antenna in a better place on the airport." And I thought, I can help with that. You know, <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do, but I figured it out and. Uh, we we were uh, nice enough to, uh, or I'm sorry, the uh, uh, manager, uh, Mike Kurgan, up at uh, Atlantic Aviation, up at our northwest corner, uh, I, I pleaded with him, do you think we could do something like that? If, you know, could we get an antenna up on your hangar or something? And I told him what it was for, and he went, oh, live ETC. Oh, yeah, sure, I, I, I we can figure something out, I you know, and uh, you, you should come out and take a look or whatever, and... Uh, I, so I, I, I went out and next thing I know, I'm climbing on top of the hangar, uh, at, uh, at, uh, the airport and we're looking around going, yeah, let's see, there's a clear shot of the South end, the East side, the West side. And I said, okay, Dave, can we put a, or I said, Mike, can we put an antenna like right there? He said, well, we've already got one over here. We could add to it or something. I said, sure, sure. Of course, then I called Dave and I said, will that work? He said, "Oh, I think it might." And before I knew it, uh, uh, Dave was coming out to uh, 
uh, executive and, and climbing in the uh, little hatchway that we went up to the roof of this hangar on and put the thing together. And now we have excellent coverage uh, for, for live ATC over at uh, Papa Whiskey Kilo. So uh, I like to think it's, you know, I helped with that. You know, I, I did the same thing at the museum. And we actually use it now in one of our exhibits. That so we so everybody in the museum can hear what's going on. Although our airport's uncontrolled at Brandywine, but it was funny because it was sort of like, okay, where are we going to put the antenna? And since we were an old manufacturing, it's sort of like it was like I said to Dave, I'm like, well, that antenna work, and we tracked the wires down, and it really is kind of amazing. If you want to volunteer to do this doesn't require a lot of space. I was no. expecting this large box and, and Dave comes in with these tiny little boxes and and spends about an hour, hour and a half fixing it and and, and suddenly it works. And it's enhanced our museum because it gives people people don't realize that especially with an airport, they're like, well where's the control tower? And you have to explain to them that it's uncontrolled airspace and the people who are managing it are are the pilots. They get another experience, that, and I'm really appreciative of Dave for coming down to do it because it gives people something that they wouldn't have. These are people who wouldn't go out to live ATC, you know, because they're just learning. But it's it's a good experience, and and it can and get immersive. So you know, there are some days that even I have it going on in the background of the store. Well, you've made such a great resource available. I think that uh, for student pilots, for example, what a wonderful way to start to learn uh, the, how ATC works and what the language is of it and so on. Uh, and I really appreciate that you've spent hundreds and thousands of hours and probably a lot of money putting this all together. Is this more of a avocation hobby for you or is this uh, monetized in some way that uh, you know makes this um, worthwhile? In other words, is this a work of love or is this a work of business? Well, anything like this starts out as a as a work of love, and then uh, in this case, it turned into a kind of an accidental business. So um, I never really kind of envisioned that for it. I was going to have it, you know, it was kind of like an open source type project thing, and you know, it just things kind of changed somewhere in the late two thousands, where uh, first of all, mobile phones got smarter. Uh, now we all have one in our pocket uh, that provided an opportunity to monetize at least the the app that we produce for iPhones and uh, Android phones. Um, so that was sort of the start of being able to monetize it and be able to kind of do it as a full time job. But then right around the same time, uh, there were some other commercial opportunities that uh, opened up. Uh, running large-scale systems that uh, sort of do the same thing that you see out at Pawaukee and other places, uh, but in a, in a much larger scale in very busy, large airports, the largest airports in the country. So uh, we're the, basically the voice monitoring solution in all of those uh, places where that is needed and wanted by the operators. So that's that's sort of another thing. And then, you know, advertising income and Data, too. I mean, the data that we store, uh, you can imagine people want to go back and pull out uh, files. And some of those people uh, are lawyers trying to prosecute legal cases or defend somebody. They're pilots who are trying to defend their ticket with uh, the FAA. 
where it's not always possible or easy to get a recording. The FAA retains their recordings, which, again, they only have from radar facilities and towers. Uh, They don't have recordings at non-controlled fields. Uh, They only store them for, I think it's 30 or 45 days. I think it used to be 30. Maybe it's 45 now. But there's a whole process. So if you have uh, an incident that occurs that puts you as a pilot in a position of having to defend yourself and you need that recording to get to the truth, what you believe to be the truth, um, you've got to go to the FAA and either make a Freedom of Information Act request called a FOIA request uh, or there's – other processes where you can contact the controlling agency, be it, you know, your local TRACON or center, and try to request the recordings. But it's very difficult. And with staffing issues, especially during COVID, uh, those were very, very difficult, if not impossible, for people to get. So anyway, that's another another piece of that. We also have people that have used companies that have used uh, the data commercially. They'll purchase, you know, a chunk of data and, you know, run, you know, AI algorithms on it to decode what's being said. As you can imagine, from a from an engineering standpoint, uh, the most complicated thing is different accents and, and languages. But the language of ATC is really kind of a closed vocabulary, right? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. You know, if you've ever, and, and, you know, if you've ever flown in the... New York area, they take a little bit, a little bit of license with, uh, with shortcuts and uh, more, you know, English-like phrase, <laughs> a little less, uh, you know, by the seventy-one ten. Um, but you know, companies do that. They they basically take that. In fact, there was a company that produced a device that will show you what is being said on the screen, and this is particularly uh, important uh, as an air traffic controller. Uh, Rob, you probably experienced this and certainly flying around, you've experienced it. You know, English as a second language. I mean, everybody out there probably knows that English is the international language of air traffic control. Um, But if English is a second language, not your uh, native language, it's very, very difficult. You can pass the test to get your pilot ticket, but being able to parrot back or repeat instructions does not mean that you really understood what the air traffic controller said. And I, I've been directly involved in providing communications. Unfortunately, it's many times the pilot's fault that there was one in Chicago one time where there was a, I don't remember the airline, but it was a South American airline and they were given a turn right heading 180 and they turned left. So things like that happen in busy airspace and, you know, it's not good. So um, so anyway, lots of – there's a, a wide audience of people who uh, consume uh, the audio. What's perhaps the, the least populated uh, region that you guys have some equipment to, to listen to ATC frequencies? <laughs> Probably uh, well, one of them that comes immediately to mind is uh, Nunavut, uh, you know, up in the uh, Arctic. Uh, we actually have uh, a radio there, although it's very low population, but it's actually incredibly active because air delivery of packages and air transport is incredibly important to people there. Not only that, but there's, uh, you know, one of the things we have a 
section of our uh, audience, people love to listen to route, uh, the high-altitude communications with centers. And uh, some locations, uh, while they might not be interesting by themselves, we'll have airports that are out in the middle of uh, a farm community or something, and just a local airport, no, no control tower. But sometimes they're really close to a set of FAA towers that actually cover multiple frequencies for high altitude communications for the center. And so that becomes really interesting for us to put equipment there because it's hard to get close to those towers because people don't always live near them. So when we have somebody who's not that far from one of those, and in fact, actually at at David's uh, museum, uh, it's one such place, uh, covering that airport, which is a busy general aviation airport, is obviously important. But Washington and uh, New York Center actually have transmitters that are just a few miles away at a VOR site. So that's one of the other reasons why it was, you know, fortuitous to have the equipment at, at the museum there. Did, did you go up to the Arctic to put that receiver? No, no. And I, I wanted to mention earlier that I don't go out to all these locations to uh, install equipment. That clearly wouldn't scale. <laughs> we don't make that much money. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's it's a typical situation is if I happen to be going to an area and there's a, a bunch of places and they're logistically challenging to run cable or whatever. Sometimes I'll do it, but more often than not, we just tell people what they need to do. We'll supply them with the uh, equipment and they'll do the installation themselves. It's not that hard to do. Dave is a Philly boy, so he was coming home. I was in the hood. That's cool. Hey, in terms of the volunteers, is that uh, initiated from both sides? People come to you and say, hey, I'd be interested in putting up a receiver and you sometimes go to them and say, hey, we could use something in your location? Yeah, it's by far... um, these days, much more inbound people wanting to help, um, and it's it's really a struggle to to really keep up with all that. So there's a sort of prioritizing of things. You know, if somebody is clearly very clueful and tech savvy, they go to the top of the list, and they're usually you know in and out pretty quick. The ones that take a little bit more time uh, sometimes have to wait a little bit. But you know, we send detailed instructions if they want to buy and own the little computer and the little the antenna and things like that because they might use it down the road when they're not sending a feed to us then say hey you know here's what you buy and uh here's how you put it together and and otherwise we we try to provide the equipment so what's the typical cost for somebody to put in a kind of a minimal installation where they're just monitoring one frequency and maybe they've got a you know relatively simple antenna because they're somewhat close to an airport well, if you already have a computer, then it can cost as little as you know, $25 for a radio, a few bucks for a cable, and then an antenna, maybe 50 bucks. So for under $100, if you're using an existing computer, that's that's typical. And then otherwise, it's maybe you know, $150, $150 to $200 uh, all in with an antenna and coax cable and computer and a little receiver. Maybe this is a good use for that old laptop that's sitting in the closet not being used because uh you know it's it's not updated anymore or something like that what operating systems does does this require uh windows uh works great if you're going to be attaching to uh, uh just a scanner type radio um otherwise the real preferred platform is a raspberry pi hmm. uh there are other boards you know uh during the pandemic there uh 
and, and we're still suffering through it. There's a big shortage of Raspberry Pi boards. They're very difficult to get. Uh, a lot of that problem is supposed to be solved in the next 12 months. Um, but uh, a lot of people got them and they sort of, you know, use it for a little project and people have them hanging around. But Raspberry Pi is really the preferred way, especially with those uh, little USB receivers that I was talking about. Yeah. I think I've got three or four Raspberry Pis over there in the bin behind me <laughs> that I haven't used in a while. Well, this is uh, this, this is fascinating, Dave. Uh, maybe uh, do you have any any tips for, let's say, somebody listening who perhaps isn't a pilot, isn't maybe all that familiar with air traffic control, um, who toodles on over to the liveatc.net website. Any any tips for them as to how they could uh, maybe get the most out of it or or jump into it in a way that's uh, fun and um, invaluable for them? Yeah, I would say if you're going to – if you're just starting out, go to the – we have a top 50 channels uh, that just updates you know every few minutes – uh, start out with some of the more popular towers at the busy airports because you'll get uh, kind of a fire hose effect of uh, what it's like and what the language is like. I, I really remember back when I started listening to this stuff, I was a kid with a, a little tunable radio and I used to drive out to the airport. Well, ride out to the airport, I should say, on my bicycle with this little radio strapped to my 10-speed bike. And, you know, you had a, it was one of these things with a little vernier tuning dial and it wasn't digital at all. So you had to, you had to find just the right spot, just like you're tuning in an AM radio. And uh, I was listening to it and I didn't understand a word they were saying. And in fact, a few years before I uh, became a pilot, I started listening again in earnest I got an, sort of a, a bug again, and this is in my sort of mid to late 30s. And there was some of the lingo that I just thought I knew what they were saying, but I didn't. And then over time, it just sort of, you know, becomes more clear what they're talking about. And it, it's really interesting, uh, but you'll you'll pick it up. Today, people have uh, the, the advantage of ADSB and being able to go to uh, Flight Radar 24 and Flight Aware. So, one thing that people like to do is to uh, track airplane. You know, they have a friend who's on a flight. Oh, I want to track this, you know, Delta flight or whatever. Find out where they are. And, you know, when they get closer to the airport and close enough to talk to the control tower within usually 10 miles of the airport, go find that airport pull up the tower channel and listen for that aircraft. Um, that's one of the things that's really tough about when you get outside the ground and the tower environment, you get into these different radar sectors and they're all divided geographically and they're, it's very difficult to take an aircraft that you see on flight radar 24, for example, and tell exactly what frequency they're going to be on because the airspace sometimes changes depending on what runways they're landing on, what the wind configuration is. Um, and so that it changes things. So there's really very difficult to do that deterministically with a database, even though I understand it pretty intimately from both sides uh, as a pilot. And I, I've been inside a bunch of air traffic facilities and I study all the procedures and I, I know that stuff pretty intimately. But even then, it changes. And, you know, what's current today might be a whole different SOP uh, six months from now. And it was really different during COVID. There was um, 
a lot of uh, combining up of, you know, geographic sectors and lots of people were out sick and there was physical separation going on. And now we're, uh, it's the floodgates now. So we, we don't have enough controllers. We don't have enough pilots. We don't have enough mechanics. So we're in this sort of aviation flood now. Right, right. But one recommendation I, I would mention is I'm sure it's in the top 50, but if you haven't experienced it before, you must go up and listen to somebody uh, either working ground or tower at uh, JFK in New York. Because what Dave said before about, well, English is supposed to be the language of air traffic control and flying, and you're not always certain that the people at Kennedy are speaking English, but they do uh, they do make it very interesting at times when it's really busy. And, uh, and honestly, I mean, those people earn their keep by keeping them apart at, at, at places like that. But what, what are some of the other top uh, places that come to mind for you, Dave? Yeah, JFK is probably the, the most iconic, and there's a ton of uh, YouTube videos out there <laughs> that people can go listen to that uh, where things got pretty uh, pretty heated. Uh, I like uh, LAX. Um, I, uh, I like listening to Philly because, you know, that, that was kind of where I first got interested in aviation and where I uh, grew up as a kid. Um, Boston's pretty busy. It's local and kind of near and dear to me because I fly in the uh, airspace a lot here. Atlanta, uh, Dallas, you know, a lot of the busier airports, but um, Chicago is kind of unique. Uh, O'Hare, we've got a, little, a few technical problems out there right now, but they do things a little bit differently there in terms of the way that they vector aircraft. You know, it's, it's interesting because every air tra- all air traffic controllers go to Oklahoma City for their primary training. But once you get out to a facility, uh, there are different strategies for how aircraft are vectored. There's a lot of basic skill involved there uh, that's the same across all airspace. But some facilities run things a little bit differently in terms of how they sequence aircraft for arrival at the uh, at the airport. You're probably familiar with exactly what I'm talking about, Rob. Yeah, I had a chance to visit the Tracon, the Chicago Tracon, a couple of months ago, and uh, they made it look easy. I said, "You you guys don't seem that busy. Well, you're just not here at the right time. You ought to be <laughs> here when people are yelling at each other." Uh, but uh, and of course, one thing I didn't see, and that's also uh, another time to tune into one of these uh, big facilities, is when there's bad weather in the area. Uh, because they really earn their keep at uh, at O'Hare, at Dallas, uh, at Kennedy, at Boston. Uh, it it just goes up for grabs because no matter the procedure, controllers are forced to uh, improvise at times because of the weather. And when three airplanes don't want to go one way and the other one does, or or you know, and then you've got the airplanes that those interfere with, and it's it's like a it's it's like a game of dominoes. One thing you really want to catch sometime is when there's a runway switch. When that happens, it's a it's a mad scramble when they uh, have to drain all the aircraft in the one runway, but the winds have shifted and now they're on the opposite. Uh, and uh, with approaches. Another airport, uh, I'll just mention one more, and, and it's one that I think everybody ought to listen to, and that's uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. 
that's a training tower. Uh, it's also home to uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University of the Florida branch. And it's amazing. There are just so many so many aircraft in there, and it's mixed in with some commercials, some business, business jets, uh, but tons and tons of training aircraft. So you really get a mix of, uh, of a whole lot of stuff going on at once. Dave, I got to ask you, you and I are both uh, ham radio operators and electrical engineers. As I look over your uh, left shoulder there, there's a six foot long table full of all kinds of equipment. You just got to tell us, what is all that cool looking stuff over there? Uh, that's just a mashed together uh, set of radios just to cover uh, my local airport where I fly out of. This is actually the, the home where that is picked up and also Manchester Airport. And uh, they're both we're about equidistant from them here at my office. So uh, we have that and we there's a little bit of overlap coverage. Uh, in some areas, we have more than one channel of the same thing and they're at different receiver sites. So some of them are just favorites of mine that are local favorites. So some of those excess radios over there are actually to cover one particular approach sector that's really busy that goes in the Hanscom Airport, which is a reliever uh, airport for Boston Logan, just outside Boston. So, yeah, mostly just uh, unit and Bearcat scanners over there and, and uh, powered antenna splitter and a whole bunch of cables hanging up there, miscellaneous radio programming things and whatnot. I, I also have one other airport you should listen to at least once a year, specifically during one week, <laughs> and that would be that would be K O S H. It, it is definitely the week that I have live ATC on for Wisconsin that week because if you want to hear if you want to hear air traffic control done right and sometimes differently, just rock your wings and then head for the pink dot. And the same thing with Sun and Fun, uh, which just uh, we just passed uh, a few weeks ago. We have special setups uh, at both those uh, airports. Uh, in fact, we're also uh, involved with Sun and Fun Radio down at uh, at Sun and Fun, and we stream their uh, radio content, which is a whole bunch of aviation interviews and different things. So um, we, we also support different organizations with what we do. Um, one of them is the Air Race Classic, uh, which will be coming up here in uh, it's June. So we provide a bunch of radio receivers that go out to all the different flyby airports uh, so that uh, they can use the recordings from the little receivers to make sure that racers uh, make their radio calls that are part of the uh, – you know, the regulations for the race and stuff like that. So so we try to get involved and, and sort of get back to different general aviation uh, events and, and things that I think are very interesting in terms of bringing new pilots uh, into the mix. And, and we can listen to this on our smartphones, can't we? That's right, yeah. Yeah, just look for Live ATC Air Radio on uh, the Apple App Store, and then there's uh, Live ATC for Android on the uh, Android App Store. Very good. Dave, thanks so much for coming by. Really appreciate it. It's good to see you again. It has been a couple of years since uh, – I think it was at Sun and Fun where I saw you last. It was, yeah. It's great to see all you guys. I'll be out at Oshkosh for two or three uh, days and hope to see whoever's going to be there. I, I assume you're going to be up there, Rob? Yes. Uh, are you going to be there beginning of the week or end of the week? Beginning, yeah. Huh. I'll be out there. I'll, I'll be out Saturday, Sunday, and probably Monday, Tuesday into Wednesday. Good, good. 
All right. I'll be the guy with the funny glasses. All right. What's up with the geeks? Let's see. Let's start with with David. David, you had a uh, little traveling adventure recently. Remember I said I was going on my first low-cost carrier flight? Yep. Um, and, And the airline in question was the one that's got the really cool tails. I'm going to call them out by name, Frontier. Well, let's just first start by saying that Amber, my fiance, flew down to Orlando on Monday, and they had a four or five hour delay, but they, she was not on a low cost carrier at the time. She was on American airlines and they had a bunch of weather delays primarily because of, um, again, weather in the Orlando area. So Wednesday, Wednesday comes along. I woke up at six o'clock in the morning and I got to the airport at seven for my nine o'clock flight. And as I get to the gate, I got a text message on my frontier app saying my flight was delayed until three 30 in the afternoon. They had no pilot for the airplane. So I'm call up Amber now who's down in Florida going, um, okay, just so you know, I probably won't be getting in until six thirty, seven o'clock tonight. She goes, well, what can we do? Believe it or not, I was next to a gate with another low cost airline. Do you know the ones with the bright yellow airplanes that Jeff blue wants? They had a nine 30 flight to Orlando next gate over. So believe it or not, I went over to um, that gate. And as I was walking to it, Amber was on the app, on the Spirit app, getting me booked on a flight to Orlando. It took off on time. It was a completely full flight. Luckily, I did get a seat. Um, Overall, it was kind of a pleasant experience. The uh, I, I have to admit the staff was on the ground was really nice and competent. The staff on the airplane were great. Uh, I was sort of surprised at five flight and flight attendants on an A321. I wasn't even perturbed about my Coke and my bag of uh, pretzels being nine bucks, considering the flight was down was about 225 bucks for the day. Now I filed an insurance claim with the, the, um, Frontier flight because basically um, I didn't take that, but it definitely was you get what you pay for. But I think part of it was even if I had flown on a normal cost carrier, I might have had the same problem. I did fly Frontier home. Now, between Frontier and, and Spirit, I will say they were both 321s. The Spirit aircraft seats were less comfortable the seat pitch my knees were up against the 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 seat in front of me the frontier flight was a little bit better however the seat wasn't as comfortable as the spirit aircraft the more leg room but given if you've known where i had my cancer surgery um that part of my body still aches a couple of days after coming home um the crew on the Frontier flight on the way home was was fine. The gate crew at the Frontier flight down in Orlando was absolutely hard to hear. Um, and barely we could hear them call 
without everybody boarding the aircraft. What I, I thought was interesting about that was I got there. How was your flight email a day later? And one of the questions was, were you able to hear your gate agent? <laughs> there must have been a reason for that. Which strikes me as, okay, there's an issue there. Um, if, if your MailChimp has got a question like that, um, that has been a complaint before. The food prices were comparable on both airplanes. Um, a Basically, a Coke and a bag of pretzels on Frontier was going to be about 9 bucks. In that, that case, we had brought on our own beverages on the flight down. Um it was an interesting experience. Would I fly them again? I don't know. I might fly Spirit again. I don't. I didn't see really any problems. Frontier. I. I question whether I'll actually fly them again. The customer service wasn't all that great. Um, the baggage check-in in Orlando was just awful, considering we were had a checked bag. And it took almost 35 minutes just to hand the bag to the agent to put it on the belt to get on the airplane. Um, the the hour it took for the baggage to get off the airplane to the rotunda at Philadelphia International, I'm not going to blame Frontier because as far as I'm concerned, Philadelphia International Airport, is the lo- you, you have to wait the longest for your baggage in anywhere in the world. Um, I have never not had to wait forever for my baggage but overall I, it was an interesting experience um and one of the other comments i said to amber and this has come up with rob and max have said this also is one of the interesting aspects of flying the low cost carriers is you are flying with people who are not used to flying and that makes Things that shouldn't be complicated, even more complicated. Um, and the a la carte process of purchasing your bag and, and, and all of that gets even more complicated for people who aren't familiar with flying. So you have them go through the TSA, then you have to have them check a bag. All of that gets complicated very quickly and um, especially and in Orlando, it was there was a language there were language issues involved. But in order for them to simplify their and minimize their staff, they've made it more complicated. And um, it's definitely more complicated for the people who will automatically pick the flight because they're going to Disney World, and this is their one vacation with their three kids, um, and. They can't. They can't afford to fly first class on United or American or or whatever, and they're not used to flying, and they need additional help going through the whole process. And you're not going to get it on a low cost carrier. So, with me being an experienced flyer, I didn't real. I still had problems, but they were not complicated by the fact that I was not used to the processes that were involved. So that was my adventures in low-cost carrying. Um, I still like the Frontier Airlines as far as their aircraft goes, um, but as far as their service, eh, not so much. All right. But you got there and you got back. I did, and I 
when I was there, I had the most amazing time in the world. <laughs> yeah, but to, to their, uh, you know, the, the defense of Orlando Airport, everybody knows it's kind of a Mickey Mouse operation anyway. <laughs> oh. oh. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on to Max Trescott. I'm back. I got in about uh, 11.30 p.m. on a Sunday night after uh, being on the road for eight days teaching in a brand new vision jet, which I probably end up doing this eh, four or five times a year. Great fun. Put about 30 hours on this uh, new jet over the last uh, week. Uh, always fun being there when a new owner picks up their uh, their new jet as they have uh, a fun little process where they unveil the uh, the aircraft to them for the first time with a, uh, a darkened hangar and disco lights and music and it's wow. really it's it's quite the treat wow. to uh, to be in the vehicle when it drives in through the the door which you know uh, you know is raised up as the the you know the vehicle comes in and the new owner hops out and gets to uh, see their jet. So really, really fun to be there as part of uh, all the deliveries. Uh, this was serial number 440, uh, and they're now uh, producing yeah, around 100 of them uh, per year. And it used to be when I first started uh, teaching the Vision Jet, you know, you'd show up at an airport and everybody would swoop around. It's like, oh, we got to see this. Uh, now I got to tell you, uh, often when we landed, there was another one there. So there were often two of us, you know, on the ramp, uh, you know, to the point where one time I, I walked up to a guy and said, Hey, what kind of plane is this anyway? And he kind of laughed because, you know, we're both in the same, same kind of uh, aircraft, but uh, great trip. Um, I will mention uh, something. This again is kind of inside baseball. We're all supposed to be monitoring guard frequency one to 1.5. And I do that pretty well when I'm in the vision jet. I don't always do that as well when I'm teaching day-to-day -day, uh, locally here, uh, but I'm happy to report that we only heard one meow the entire trip. Now, you may wonder, what is that about? There are airline pilots, <laughs> I'm thinking they're the people doing this, uh, who must get bored because they will from time to time on guard go meow, and then someone else <laughs> will go meow. And uh, I still remember at the height of the pandemic, uh, another pilot jumping down the throat of someone going, hey, we got people who are unemployed here and you need to act more professionally. And, you know, I'll just put out my two cents, which is, yeah, pretty darn unprofessional uh, to be doing that. Um, so anyway, I was happy to hear only one meow. And I thought, oh, OK, maybe maybe people are growing up a little bit. <laughs> so but you got to have fun, though. Well, I don't know. I, I understand. <laughs> Do you know what the what aircraft the the new VisionJet owner had previously or flew? I do. Uh, he has a, an SR twenty two T. So that's not uncommon for a lot of uh, new VisionJet owners to have stepped up from a, a Cirrus aircraft. And you know, many aircraft manufacturers have had that as a strategy for you know 60, 70 years. That people at Cessna would start in a one seventy two and move up to a one eighty two and move up to a two oh six and move up to a jet. So it's pretty pretty common. Um, I did want to mention that uh, I have a long list of things that people are supposed to uh, accomplish. We don't always get to every single item on the list, uh, but one of them we did on our last landing, which was coming into San Jose International, where we parked the uh, the jet. Uh, nice to be home after being on the road for a week. 
And uh, that was the maximum speed approach. So typically uh, we're fairly slow uh, when uh, the flaps are set for approach speed and we're coming in the last four or five miles, we're at 95 knots. So we're pretty slow if you're going into O'Hare or some other place, they want you to keep the uh, the speed up. Uh, and so they s- said something along, hey, if you keep your speed up, we can fit you in between the jets. And I, I should have been quick and said, you mean the other jets? <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, the nice thing is with our traffic system, we were able to identify exactly how fast the, uh, the Southwest jet was in front of us. Now it was 12 miles. He was doing 250. So we paced him at 250 for a good portion of the approach. We later saw another one coming in from behind us, uh, 12 miles behind us, also doing it 250. Uh, they told us to, uh, you know, if we got close to the airport, to maintain 170 to a five-mile final. And, you know, it was kind of interesting to uh, to watch the new owner. Uh, got a little bit challenged in terms of remembering, oh, there are speed limitations as to, you know, when you can lower the flaps and when you can lower the landing gear and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I will say that uh, it's fun being an airplane that can uh, can keep up with the jets. I know there have been cases where Vision Jet owners have been told to uh, slow up. You're catching up with a 737 ahead of you. So it's, uh, it's great fun uh, flying the aircraft and uh, had a really great week. Very good. What are the flap and uh, landing gear speeds in the Vision Jet? I was going to pretend not to know, but the uh, first notch of flaps <laughs> can go in at 190. The uh, second notch can go in at uh, 150, and the gear extension speed is 210. Nice. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. All right, Rob, anything new with you aviation-wise? Uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to uh, – uh, an executive pilots association member, Marty Galas, who got his uh, uh, FAA um, uh, Wright Brothers Master Pilot Award on Saturday night. And he also got the uh, Charles Taylor uh, Master Mechanic Award because he's at A&P. And uh, so all, a good time was had by all. And um, he was recounting, a, Marty retired from uh, uh, UPS a couple of years ago. He was on a 767-300 and and to look back because at these uh, events they always have pictures of the old days, all the airplanes you flew before, and the people you knew. And uh, you know he flew for PSA and uh, Air Wisconsin and Brit, and uh, you know and flying a whole gaggle of uh, cool airplanes. Um, but what I thought was most interesting is that uh, he mentioned, uh, well, you know, I've, I've been flying for a long time. You know, I mean it takes and he wasn't being a braggart he just said well you know it takes a while to to uh, to log 28,000 hours and I went holy shit I hours. said Marty I said 28,000 uh, he said yeah well that's a lot of flying I said 28,000 yeah 28,000 a lot of flying uh but anyway so big shout out he got his uh, master pilot award and now he's uh uh he's one of the cool guys great great Dave, are you doing anything uh, interesting aviation-wise lately? Uh, coming out of the winter uh, <laughs> doldrums, there's always a few months out of every year we get this thing called ice up here, and uh, yeah, it's not it's not a lot of fun. I do do some uh, uh, volunteer flying. I, I use the plane for uh, going to some work locations and, and things like that, but I do volunteer flying with uh, uh, an organization called PALS, uh, Patient oh, yes. Airlift Service. And uh, also with uh, Angel Flight Northeast, mm-hmm. uh, so I try to I try to get a, a few missions a year in uh, with that. Um, and then one of these days, I'm going to go and wrap up my uh, 
commercial uh, single and, and multi and and have that just as uh, you know something to challenge myself. I I've been threatening to take my commercial check ride for I think seventeen years now, but I it never really rises to the uh, to the top of my list <laughs> because I don't really intend to do any commercial flying. So anyway, uh, but yeah, ma- maintaining currency is uh, near and dear, and uh, I take it pretty seriously. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australian news desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 23rd of April, 2023. Well, g'day, folks. Welcome to the Australia Desk for episode 746. Well, Grant, uh, lots to cover this week, and we've really had to pick uh, some stories with care so we can fit it into the allegedly 10 minutes that we normally do. So let's (laughs) kick it off. Grant, um, we talk a lot about Rex here, Regional Express, a, uh, a probably Australia's largest regional carrier. They get around to a lot of uh, remote and obviously, as the name implies, regional centres around Australia. They do very, very important work. Um, there's actually a lot of history that comes with uh, Rex Airlines and it actually came out of the ashes of a, uh, a previously named carrier by the name of Hazelton Airlines. Uh, that airline was started by a gentleman by the name of uh, Max Hazelton, uh, a very much a pioneer in Australian aviation circles and sadly, Grant, in the last week or so, he's uh, passed away at the age of 95. Yep, just before his 96th birthday. So hell of a career in aviation here in Australia. He started with an Oster Aglet, a little um, little Oster aircraft flying a few people, like very few, one or two. And um, that, that built the Hazelton Airlines and um, they were flying Saabs and so on when they uh, became Rex. So yeah, merged into uh, ANSET. And when ANSET went under just after 9-11, they came out and uh, formed into Rex. So majority owned out of Singapore, but uh, very big in the regions here in Australia. But even flying 737s on the Golden Triangle between uh, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. Uh, so they've come a long way. Yeah, they certainly have. And, uh, you know, it's sad to see uh, Max Hazelton die, but he, he has really left a lasting legacy. You know, Grant, when I was a young man and first coming into aviation, I remember, um, and you talk about ANSET, there was several training schemes that were going on at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were cadetship schemes and other others were schemes that uh, if you were accepted and were prepared to take humongous loans, <laughs> I only know this because I was one of those people um, <laughs> and I didn't end up going through with it, but um, you could actually go into the ANSET training scheme and if memory serves and perhaps some listeners from this part of the world might be able to just um, set those uh, you know dominoes straight for me but I, I believe that Hazelton was part of that and I think um, one of the career streams you could have taken at that time was to go through Hazelton through their training scheme and then you know be looking at flying for ANSET on 737s etc down the track um, I, you know I was one that I couldn't afford to take at that time was a $35,000 deferred loan. So I'm glad I didn't take it. But uh, yeah, at least it was a career stream at that time that um, was pioneered very much by the likes of Hazelton and Max himself. So um, valet to him and uh, thank you to Max Hazelton for the, uh, the great legacy that you've left. Uh, for aviation in this part of the world. Uh, Grant, briefly speaking of Rex 2, I note with interest uh, an article here in simpleflying.com that um, Rex has actually taken a 20% stake in Dovetail Electric Aviation, which is an Australian-based company that is specialising in converting turbine-powered aircraft into electric propulsion. Interesting. 
That's right. Dovetail formed by uh, Sydney Aviation Holdings, uh, who own Sydney Airplanes, and also Dante Aeronautical, an electric aviation startup. So Dante is in Australia and Spain, but uh, Dovetail is in Australia, and they've already been working with Sydney Seaplanes uh, with one of their Cessna caravans, and they're using it on the flight between Sydney and Canberra, where it's landing on Lake Burley Griffin. Uh, causing all sorts of fun for some of the Canberrans who are wondering what the heck. But uh, yeah, it's it's electric, so it's quieter, and uh, they're using that. And it's it's only like a half hour, if that, flight. So perfect. Yeah, interesting. And uh, well, you know, anytime you're landing any sort of plane up there on the Lake Burley Griffin, or as it's sometimes known, Lake Curly Gherkin. <laughs> That uh, certainly would uh, wouldn't matter what it was propelled by, really, Grant. That certainly would get uh, tongues wagging, I'm sure. Oh, it certainly did when I splashed my balloon into there. But I, uh, that's a oh, whole oh, different. Story. I wasn't even going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went to sit nice and gentle on the water like we normally do, and I screwed it up one time and dunked myself up to my knees and my passengers. It was hilarious, especially as one of the passengers was the former uh, former. Air Commander of Australia and former Director of Aviation Safety at CASA. Um, he had some choice words. It was hilarious. <laughs> oh, I'm glad it was hilarious. It could have been something else, anyhow. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, speaking of government departments, Grant, that have had words that may not please certain uh, parties here in Australia, and speaking of uh, another big uh, regional um, carrier here, in fact, Alliance, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, who we talk about quite often here, has um, openly opposed Qantas's plans to take a rather large stake in that airline. That's right, mate. Uh, Qantas announced back in May 2022 that they were going to fully acquire Alliance and ACCC have said negative. Uh, Yeah, so not a good look for Qantas and Qantas are, of course, flagging a concern about this and they're seeking more information from the ACCC about why has it been opposed. You know, one of the briefs of the ACCC is to ensure that there's sufficient competition in any given market, really. And one of the things I think they're concerned about here is that um, by uh, Qantas swallowing up or effectively swallowing up Alliance, that it may actually uh, have a negative impact on competition and therefore fares and all that sort of stuff across the region. Uh, Qantas, uh, predictably, is not happy about this, Grant. Oh, especially as uh, Rex acquired charter operator National Jet Express from Cobham to help grow them. And, of course, Virgin, uh, they're quite clear about their plans to expand their own resources flying. So, you know, bad news for Qantas, but I'm sure this isn't going away and we'll be hearing more about it over the next few weeks or months. No, I'm sure we'll get some great audio grabs in coming weeks and months from our uh, <laughs> always a good source from Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, the ever-popular Alan Joyce. Uh, yes, yes. I'm sure we could probably even get him on the show, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> in fact, Grant, you and I know somebody who's quite well known in aviation media here who does the most letter-perfect, accent-perfect impersonation of Alan Joyce. And if we didn't think we'd get sued, we'd have him on and get him to do the interview. But, <laughs> oh, Mate, uh, and also don't forget, I know Alan Joyce. He's a balloon pilot. Oh, really? Oh, yes, but not the – that's a different Alan Joyce. Yes. You yes, almost had me course- again with that. <laughs> caused much consternation when we announced that Grant had interviewed Alan Joyce and we played it on an old PCDU. Everyone came back and said, well played. Well played, well played. indeed. Grant, our last story on the list this week uh, is turning to the warbird scene and the uh, warbird uh, scene here in Australia has been the uh, lucky recipient of a North American P-51D, a Mustang, another Mustang in the country. Grant, that can always be a good thing. Oh, totally. I believe this one is static only, though, but uh, the Hunter Fighter Collection up at uh, Scone, uh, they uh, 
they've received this from the RAF Museum. It's actually painted in the, the markings of a former Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot who flew as an exchange pilot with the, the uh, US Army Air Corps in the UK and uh, served with the 357th Fighter Group and escorted B-17s. Well, the fun part is Jack Cleland's family actually live in the Hunter Valley near Scone where this aircraft will be on display. That's uh, fantastic. Of course, of course uh, Scone is the home for a lot of uh, really great restored aircraft and a lot of warbirds. In fact, uh, we had the uh, Hawker Hurricane was living up there for a while. That's actually been on sold these days and doesn't live there anymore. But, uh, Grant, um, this aircraft obviously made the 20,000-kilometre trip here um, in a pallet and um, <laughs> it's actually reassembled in record time, three whole days. I know, right? The team up there, they have stacks of experience with these aircraft and there's a couple of Mustangs I think they've worked on before. So yes, it was well disassembled by the RAF Museum and they were able to put it together in three days so it's ready for Anzac Day this week. In fact, by the time this goes live, we will have had Anzac Day. Well, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. There's a lot of interesting news coming up, Grant, particularly on the defence side with the release uh, coming up of the uh, Defence Strategic Review. Try saying that three times quickly. And uh, (laughs) we're going to be ploughing through that over the next week and just seeing, at least in defence terms, defence aviation terms, Grant, how that that will affect our uh, armed forces going forward. It's going to be big and the leaks have already started and it's not looking good for Army. You've got to love politics. Until next week, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks. You know, it's going to keep me pretty busy reading all that stuff. (laughs) Well, no better man for it. I'll leave that to you. No, thanks. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Dave Pascoe. You can find uh, Dave's creation at liveatc.net. Uh, Dave, is there anyone else that helps you, uh, you know, pull all this together, or, or is this really a one-man show? No, it's not not exactly one-man show, but I uh, uh, have some great uh, developers that handle the mobile apps uh, that uh, on contract and uh, a ton of volunteers who um, help answer questions and help with, uh, you know, shepherding the community, which is a huge help. I could not do this myself. Very good. And, of course, that's liveatc.net, and you can also find the app that is applicable to either uh, iOS or Android. All right. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 746, and our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. And how about you, Rob Mark? Where do folks find you? Uh, Well, I'm right here. See, I'm... I'm up in the upper left-hand corner here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, they find me at uh, at Jetwine and uh, on the uh, pages of an aviation publication near you. Uh, but uh, usually at Jetwine, and I don't know where uh, up to Oshkosh, I guess uh, this year, and who knows where. Okay. And David Vanderhoof, how about you? Well, currently you can find me diving into the archives of the American Helicopter Museum as I work on my finishing up my um, major project this year, which is a history of Sikorsky, Igor Sikorsky's um, conversion, con, 
becoming a U.S. citizen in celebration of Sikorsky Aircraft's 100th anniversary. Um, that exhibit's opening in June 1st, and I'm rapidly running out of time. Um, but other than that, you can find me on social media, of course, if you know how to spell Vanderhoof. And on um, Fridays with that guy, Max Flight, talking about drones on the UAV Digest. All right. Ian Max Trescott, how about you? Well, you can find me on the Aviation News Talk podcast where we focus on general aviation and aviation safety. And you can find that at, at uh, aviationnewstalk.com or wherever you get your podcast. And, of course, you can send email to me at aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. Great. And I'm Max Flight. Look for me on Mastodon. Just find uh, Max Flight on Mastodon. And if you'd like to find the other places where I tend to hang out online, just take a look at 30,000feet.com, and there's links there. All right. So we'll ask you to please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. See ya. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.